Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the rain. And Lord, we thank you for all the blessings in life, for, for life and for salvation. And Heavenly Father, this evening, we ask that you would help us look heavily and weightily into these great promises that you have for us, that we may run the race in this life with perseverance, that we may um, flee from sin and live for the promises that are yet to come, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, a resurrected body and reigning with our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us these things, help us understand the Scriptures well, and we ask that you would accomplish that through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see this evening, we're going to be in individual eschatology, and I didn't want to um, not teach on this subject because I think it's important not just for us. I know to a certain degree I'm going to be speaking to the choir this evening, but I think we can all glean things from these passages, but also for those who may be listening on the Internet who are not saved. This is, a, I think, a subject that everyone should have to wrestle with because, as you're going to see in the next slide, the death rate is one per person. Let me just tell you, how I want to focus, or what I want to focus in on in this um, study, is I'm going to be looking at primarily, I would be looking at New Testament texts, but we're going to be focusing on the Old Testament understanding of what happens to an individual, whether they be a believer or unbeliever after we die, because there's been a lot of angst among evangelicals that somehow the Old Testament is not clear. And what I want to show is it is clear. And the Old Testament and the New Testament speak with one voice and they teach the same doctrines concerning what happens to the individual believer and unbeliever after death. And so that's why I'm going to be focusing on the Old Testament so that you can have the confidence and say, yes, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation speak with one voice concerning these doctrines about the things that are to come and therefore you can be confident in them. Again, as you can see on this slide, I want to point out the death rate and I point, notice I say at least one per person. And the reason why I make that qualification, at least one, is because technically for the unbeliever, they're going to die twice. But every single person will in fact die at least once, will they not? The unbeliever will in fact be part of the second death, that is the eternal torment. But the death rate is at least one person. And you know what, I'll take questions at the end. And I know right away people are probably thinking of Enoch and Elijah, and we'll talk maybe a little bit about that and our discussion time. But nonetheless, this is what the scriptures say. And why did sin or death come about? Well, it was because of sin, as we see in Genesis 2.16. And here we have the commandment that Yahweh gave to Adam. And notice in this text that the command that they could eat only of, or eat of all the fruit, except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the command is given to Adam. And so when Eve sins, Adam in a real sense, is on the hook because he is the headship over Eve and he hangs her out to dry. He doesn't correct her. And, of course, he blames her and she blames the, the serpent. And as the joke goes, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. So, But here, here's the command that the Lord gives. The Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now we know that they fail... They eat of the forbidden fruit, and then therefore death enters into the scene. And so death originally, friends, was not designed for the human being, but rather sin initiated death. Now, I want to be careful because you also realize that God isn't a God who goes from plan A to plan B to plan C as human beings fail. He's always been on plan A. So God knew that this was going to happen. But nonetheless, human beings are created 
with the capability of living forever until we sin. And in some sense, it is God's grace and mercy that death enters into the picture because had Adam and Eve lived forever, and remember that was why God put the angel with a flaming sword in front of the tree of life, because if they gained access to that tree, they would have had to live in eternal separation from God, which is really the definition of hell. And so death, in some sense, is an act of mercy. And I want you to think of this, friends. Death is a means by which God forces all of humanity to wrestle with the notion of their own mortality, and therefore they're under time pressure. They're under pressure because their mortality, their death can happen at any moment, and therefore they must seek him. And, of course, we know if we have our theology right, God seeks people, and therefore they seek him only because of his grace. Genesis 3.19, we see this whole saga continue where the Lord commands or gives this promise to Adam because of his sin. He says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And this becomes an important concept even in Ecclesiastes, the idea that human beings are physical, And therefore, when they die, their physical nature goes into the ground. But yet, the spirit, the nefesh that the Lord gives, that remains forever. Okay? So here we see, in fact, Adam will die. Genesis 5.5 records that he died. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Now, the reason why I underline 930 years is notice that certainly isn't in the exact day that he ate. Well, the idea was the command was given, the decree that he would die... But, of course, he lived a lifespan of 930 years, and then he died. Romans 6.23, going to the New Testament, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, And in this context, the death he's speaking of is both physical and spiritual. When people try to claim it's one or the other, I think it's without warrant. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. Hebrews 9.27, as much as it appointed once for a man to die, after that comes judgment. I think it's a very important passage to remember for our Catholic brothers and sisters who claim the doctrine of purgatory, that they can somehow clean their slate, if you will, after they die. This passage wipes that possibility out because, in fact, you will enter into judgment after you die. So after you die, there comes judgment. In fact, I was able to use that passage with a gal when I was witnessing to her. So it's a very good verse to have in the back pocket, so to speak, Hebrews 9.27. So what we see, friends, and again, we could go on for a long time, but clearly the death rate is at least one per person. Every single person will die, and it's a result of sin. We also see, I want to show you that the Bible in both Old and New Testament is also universal in the description of the division of the body and soul at death. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to call this the intermediate state. That's how theologians refer to it. In other words, prior to us getting our resurrected bodies, okay, that would be the intermediate state. And the intermediate state, when we're in a resurrect or before we get our resurrected bodies, the reason why I want to make that clarification that I'm talking about individual eschatology is because the eternal states in the grand scheme of eschatology occur after the millennial kingdom into the eternal states, right? The new heavens, the new earth. But realize in the individual level, you and I will be in our eternal resurrected bodies, but reigning with Christ in a millennial kingdom that's only a thousand years in duration. And then it goes on to the eternal states. So do you see what I'm saying? So with the intermediate state, I'm referring to individual eschatology. So let me just show you what the, new te- or the Old Testament and the New Testament say about this. 
Uh, Genesis 35:18 it says it came about as her soul that is Rachel's was departing it says for she died and then what happens later in this text is she ends up uh, naming her son Benjamin but the point here is when she died her soul departed and so there you see evidence that her body went into the ground the dust returns to dust right but her soul departed showing that there's a distinction between the material aspect of a human being in the immaterial. Right away in Genesis, right away in the Pentateuch, Solomon says the same thing, Ecclesiastes 12.7. He says, then the dust will return to the earth. And remember, he's just getting that from the Genesis passage that we saw. He says, it returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So here he's clearly talking about believers. Luke 23.43, we can gain or glean the same promise that the body goes to the ground and the soul or the immaterial portion of a human being goes to be with the Lord, even from Christ, because remember, he was truly man. Luke twenty three forty three says, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So he's saying that, of course, to the man on the, the cross. Um, but it also applies to Jesus, Luke twenty three forty six, And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So even Jesus' spirit ascends, if you will, goes to be with the Father while his body goes into the ground. And then we have other passages. We have Philippians chapter 1. Here I just took another one, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, where Paul says, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so this idea of if you're absent from the body, that means your soul, your immaterial portion, will be in fact with the Lord in heaven. So body goes to the ground, immaterial portion goes to be with the Lord. And that, in fact, is for believers now, I'm going to prove that this same thing happens to unbelievers. The only difference is that an unbeliever, their body goes into the ground. The immaterial portion of them goes to Hades, or what we would call in the Old Testament, Sheol. They don't go to be with the Lord. Okay, They never have access to the Lord if they die in unbelief. But nonetheless, you can see that both in the Old and the New Testament are saying the same thing. So now let's talk about the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. And I want to go through some terms with you just to show you how the Old Testament defines the place of the dead and use these different terms. First of all, it uses the term gavar, uh, literally it kavar, and it literally means the grave. And in Genesis 23:4, in that text, it's a text regarding Abraham burying Sarah, and kavar is used as something that was cut into the cleft of rock. And because it was into the rock and it was cut into perhaps a cavernous region, that lends itself to the notion where you see that phrase, they were gathered to their ancestors or they were gathered to their fathers. The idea of being gathered into this type of grave because the ancestors would want their own ancestors buried with them. So it's the kavar, the grave, where you would gather all those who have died in your family. And that's why it's such a big deal when Joseph of Arimathea gives his grave to jesus why because in the jewish mind you don't mix things you don't mix unlike things so if you give your grave to somebody that grave is forever theirs you can't have any of your family members or yourself in it and so that would have been a very very expensive thing that joseph of arimathea did but nonetheless that's kavar so that's the term grave in general the next thing we see is bore it's the pit it's often used in synonymous parallelism with sheol and this pit is actually a cistern. This is where you would see water uh, often put when people are trying to wait out a siege. 
And so this cistern is cut into the ground, obviously, and therefore this term bore is referring to those who go into the earth. And that's why it's often called the pit. And it's often, again, used synonymously with Sheol. Here's one, Shekath, and it literally means the trap. And we see this, for instance, in Ezekiel 19, where the world's, the, the nations of the world have set a trap for Israel, and they're trying to wipe out God's anointed, specifically the one who comes on the Davidic throne, the King Jehoiakim. Because if they can wipe that out, then the, the seed promise is in some respects dead. But the thing that I want you to notice here is this is a trap that is specifically dug for people or for game. In other words, when you see Shekath used in the Old Testament, people are actually plotting. It's out to get you. There's volition. The Shekath is pursuing you, whether it be death itself as personified or whether somebody is trying to set the trap for you. So typically when you see Shekath, there's somebody that's trying to kill you. Okay, That's how it's used in the Old Testament. Aretz, that means the earth or the netherworld. Now, to be honest with you, I think it normally means the earth. And when you see this term, you'll see that people are buried into the earth. And again, that would be kind of synonymous with being buried into the pit. Eretz typically means land or earth in Hebrew. And in fact, how many of you have heard of the Israeli newspaper Haaretz? Yeah, and the Ha part of it, Haaretz, the Ha is the definite article. And then the rest of it is Aretz. So it's the land. That's what their newspaper is. So that's what it means. So you'll see these terms um, used about people being buried into the earth. Um, here's Sheol, and this is the one we're going to be focusing in on. And I'm going to be proving to you in the next few slides that it's used in three different ways. And as I'm going to show you, all of these terms, in some sense, are used in three different ways. And I'll show that in the next slide. So I won't talk about Sheol until we get into the next couple of slides. There's another term for death, maveth. That's the Hebrew. This moat comes from the Canaanite religion, but maveth means the death or the place of death. So if you just wanted to say somebody died or death came, the just generic term for death, that's what it is. You'll see that. And then finally, abaddon. Abaddon is the place of perdition, the place of destruction, and only the unregenerate go here. This is only for unbelievers, and it's synonymous with the area of Apollyon, that we see, for instance, in Revelation chapter 9. Okay, This is where the unregenerate, the unbelievers are tormented. Okay, Now, let me talk about why I'm getting into this issue. And here's, let me just give you a couple points. First of all, the alleged lack of clear delineation in how Sheol and the other terms for the afterlife were used in the Old Testament has caused some to claim that the Old Testament sees no distinction between the abode of the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, friends, there's been angst in evangelicalism today because people say, well, when I read the Old Testament, the righteous go into Sheol and the unrighteous go into Sheol. And the, the righteous fall into the pit and go to the grave and there seems to be no distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. And then all of a sudden we get to the New Testament and then there's clearly these lines of demarcation. The righteous go to be with the Lord, the unrighteous go to Hades. But the point being is I want to show you that, no, I think it's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament data. And so the Old Testament, what I want to prove to you is the Old Testament speaks with one voice with the New Testament that when the unrighteous die, they go to Hades or Sheol, which is a place only for the unrighteous, whereas those who are believers will go to be with the Lord while their body's in the ground. Okay, So that leads me to point two, 
by examining Sheol, because we don't have time to examine all of those exhaustively, those terms I gave you, we can determine that there were three distinctions that the Old Testament made regarding death in the place of the righteous and unrighteous. Okay, so let me make those three distinctions, and I think they'll become fairly obvious. Number one, Sheol often focuses on the act of death, not the location of the afterlife. So it's not, the, it's not a location issue often. It's the idea that you just died. It's the act of death itself. Now, if you pour into a text that's talking about death itself rather than the location, and you pour in the meaning that the righteous are going to the location of Sheol, then you're going to start thinking that the righteous and the unrighteous in the Old Testament go to the same place. So that's why I'm giving you these three different categories. We have to make these distinctions. Number two, Sheol sometimes refers to the area of punishment of the unbeliever. And number two, friends, this is the one that the New Testament picks up on when it talks about Hades. So Hades... Uh, in the New Testament, in Sheol, the second definition that I'm giving you here are synonymous. The New Testament talks about Hades as the place where the unbelievers go for punishment. And you'll see references to Sheol that it's a place strictly where the unbeliever is punished. Number three, Sheol sometimes refers to the grave in general where all human bodies go after death. Okay, So this is just like saying the grave. Well, certainly all believers and unbelievers go to the grave, But it's a far different matter to say believers and unbelievers all go to an area of punishment. Do you see? And that's why we have to make these distinctions on how Sheol is used. So let me prove this to you looking at the biblical data. We're going to start with category number one. We're going to see scriptures that talk about Sheol as the act of death. And I'm going to start in 1 Samuel 2, 6. Here, Hannah, do you remember Hannah? She um, actually, God answers her prayer. She has that baby Samuel And here she's giving praise to Yahweh, and she says this in her praise. She says, Yahweh kills and makes alive. Then the next line, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. And so what I want you to see here is we have a classic case of what's called synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry, where notice what I have highlighted in red. It's parallel. Yahweh kills, he brings down to Sheol. In other words, when it says he brings down to Sheol, that's synonymous with Yahweh kills. It's just another way of saying it. And same thing with the blue. He makes alive, he raises up. So raises up is just another way of saying he makes alive. So that's a classic case of synonymous parallelism. Okay. So again, here we're seeing that Sheol is being used just for the generic idea that God is killing somebody. He kills us all. In fact, oftentimes people talk about how a moral God could ask Israel to kill the Canaanites, the Amalekites, and all of, you know, even the termites, right, in the Old Testament. And you think about it, friends, a good answer to that is, in a sense, God kills us all. If you look at a picture from 200 years ago, that's not one single person that God has not killed in, in, in a real sense, right? And so the point is, is we have to, I think, when we're looking at the fairness of God, we have to take a step back and realize that he kills every one of us. He wears us out like garments, friends. Okay, the death rate's one per person. So anyway, just realize this is the act of death. He is the one who is in control of that. Um, psalm eighty nine forty eight. This whole psalm is really about the promise, the Davidic promise um, from Second Samuel seven, given to David. And you'll see this same synonymous parallelism. What man can live and not see death? The question is, no one, no man can pull that off. Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? No, he can't. And so death and Sheol again are used synonymously. Okay, so it's talking about death, not the location. 
let me give you this one is we're going to need to work on a little bit here. This is the New American Standard Bible translation of Hosea 13:14. Let me read it to you, and then I'll comment. It says this, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That's Yahweh speaking. And he asks two more questions. Shall I redeem them from death? Actually, three more questions. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now let me talk about how this has been traditionally understood and interpreted. And I think the New American Standard actually gets it wrong here. Let me explain why. Notice the very first phrase isn't a statement but a question. And this happens in a text in Hosea where God is throwing judgment upon his people. So what scholars have, what they've believed is that God is asking the question, should I ransom them? And the obvious answer would be no, I'm putting my judgment upon them. So I'm not going to ransom my people from Sheol. Okay, This is how traditionally scholars have understood this passage. So when it comes to this next question, shall I redeem redeem them from death? The, question, the obvious answer to that question would be, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm pouring my judgment upon my people. And so here's why it becomes important. When he says, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Remember, Paul borrows from that in 1 Corinthians 15.55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Right? And so what people are saying is that Paul took that out of context turned it to fit his own context. That is, God is making fun of death. He's making fun of Sheol because he's taunting it. And they're saying that's not what's going on here in Hosea 13, 14. In other words, Paul is playing fast and loose with what the text actually says. So traditional scholars have believed the question that Paul is asking here, or um, that God is asking, is he's summoning death and he's summoning Sheol. Oh, death, where are your thorns? Bring him on. Bring him on to my people. See, it's God asking it to come. Bring your thorns, death. Oh, Sheol, where's your sting? He's summoning these things upon his people. Okay, so that's traditionally how it's been understood, and that's why the New American Standard reflects it that way. Now, I'm going to show you, I think, a better translation and better understanding of this passage, and it comes from a man named Dwayne Garrett. I had the privilege of studying and using his Hebrew grammar and I think he's really a good scholar. Listen to how his translation differs. He's, he, now, it starts off, notice this is a question up here. He, he thinks it's a statement. From the power of Sheol I shall redeem them. From death I shall ransom them. So there's no question. God is making a statement. He's going to do that for his elect. Why? For his own sake. And then he goes on to ask the question, Where are your barbs, death? Where is your destructive power, Sheol? And so God is not summoning these things to come upon his people. He's taunting them. He's taunting them because he has ultimate victory over them. Now, let me give you the evidence that Dwayne Garrett is right. That when it says up here, O death, where are your thorns? It's not God summoning these judgments upon his people, but rather it's God making a mockery of them. And and let me explain why. Two reasons. Notice this uh, term, where. Where are your thorns? Where is your sting? Very interesting, as Dwayne Garrett points out, there are no examples at all in the entire Hebrew Bible of a command beginning with this Hebrew term where, because where is actually thrown forward in the Hebrew text. Okay, there's not one example of that. And what's more, and this is very powerful, all these passages that I have listed here provide examples of the term from or where introducing taunts. Why is that important? Well, because when he puts it where... Like, for instance, right here, where are your barbs, death? That's a taunt. God is taunting death. 
Where is your destructive power, Sheol? And so you see, when Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, he's getting it exactly right. God has been taunting death all along. Okay? And so my whole point in this is Paul wasn't playing fast and loose with the Old Testament text at all. He was, an interpreting, he was interpreting it correctly. Okay? And therefore, we don't have to worry about our New Testament authors playing fast and loose with the Old Testament text. No, no, no. Paul was taking it in its original context. God would deliver his people. The whole point of this, though, is I want you to see that Sheol and death are synonymous. Okay? And that's important because that belongs, again, to our first category. All right, now, with that long explanation, let's go on to number two. Sheol is seen as the place of torment for the unbeliever. We see examples, for instance, Psalm 917, where it says, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. So if you forget God, it's synonymous with being wicked. Psalm 49, 13 through 14, David says this. He says, this is the way of those who are foolish. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd. In the scriptures, especially the wisdom literature, like in Proverbs, there's only two ways. There's the way of the wise man and the way of the fool. The way of the young man, the way of the young man would be the fool in the way of the elder. Okay? So the way of the fool is always the way of the unbeliever. That's the point. If you're wise, it's because you believe in Yahweh. Okay? So the foolish is always synonymous with those who are perishing. That's the point. I know I'm giving you a New Testament text, but the reason I'm doing this is to show you that this is the way Hades is understood in the New Testament. Hades is synonymous with this category, that Sheol is a place of torment for the unbelievers. And remember, in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus understands this place as where all unbelievers go. Listen to what he says, verse 23 of Luke 16 Jesus says, In Hades, he, that is the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And besides all this, Jesus goes on to say, he says, Between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. So notice the place of the righteous one, that is Lazarus, he is one who is trusted in Yahweh. He is far away from Hades, and there is a great chasm that's fixed. And so, friends, what I'm pointing out is that's exactly what I think the Old Testament is saying to us, that this Hades is synonymous with the place where the wicked go in Sheol. That's how Hades is used. In fact, we'll see the same thing in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 through 15, that all those who are in Hades will end up being thrown in the lake of fire. Okay. Now, the third category, and this is the one that I think gives people fits because they see sometimes both the righteous and the unrighteous go to Sheol, but it's being used as a reference to the grave in general. Okay. So remember, friends, you and I use terms like cool. I'd say, well, it's cool out. You better wear a jacket. And we're talking about temperature. But if I say, wow, that jacket's cool, now I'm describing, I think your jacket is groovy or neat or whatever you want to say. I'm struggling for another adjective. But I'm using it in two different ways. And so you can see that Sheol, that's, the Old Testament writers did the same thing with Sheol. It, it had a range of meaning. And so here we see that it's being used as the grave in general. Genesis 42:38 says, But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you. And I think, he, remember, he's talking about Benjamin. He doesn't want him to go too because Simeon and Joseph, he thinks, are already gone. For his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. 
What I think Jacob is saying is, I'm going to go to the grave with gray hair. I'm, I'm going to be in the grave. I can't take it anymore. If I lose another kid, I'm going to die. I can't take it. It's too much. I think that's what he's saying. So Sheol is being used for the grave. First uh, Kings 2.6. Here we have David's charge to Solomon. There was a wicked commander, Joab. He actually murdered Abner, who was in David's war cabinet, if you will. So David is warning Solomon about him. He says, So act according to your wisdom and do not let his, that is Abner, the wicked man, his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. Don't let him go to the grave in peace. Pursue him, try to wipe him out, put him in the grave. Don't let him go to, to the grave in peace. That's the whole idea. Psalm 6.5, For there is no mention of you in death. David is pleading here. I want to live, Lord, because then I can praise you. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, that is the grave, who will give you thanks? Therefore, the idea is extend my life. Um, especially from Saul. Psalm 88.3, For my life has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. The idea of I'm close to the grave, I'm close to death. So here, friends, you can see different examples of how Sheol is used synonymously with the grave. Okay, so now, again, what that should prove to us is that Sheol is used in three different ways. And what's happened to many people, in fact, very good scholars, is they take Sheol and they just say, well, gosh, the unrighteous and the righteous go to the same place. They're not making those distinctions, okay? And the same thing happens with the other terms for pit and so forth. Next, I want to look at the Old Testament hope for the righteous. And I want you to see that the Old Testament speaks with one voice, just with the New Testament, that for the righteous, when you die, you go to be with the Lord, even though your body goes into the ground. And it starts in the um, Pentateuch itself, Numbers 23.10. Here we have Balaam. Remember, he was asked to curse Israel, but here you're going to see he wants to die like the righteous ones of Israel. Why? Because it's a benefit to die like the righteous. He says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? By the way, the reason why he's mentioning a fourth part of Israel is because, remember, Israel would camp around the four parts of the tabernacle. And so the idea is they're so magnificently large now is you can't even count one of the sides that's around the tabernacle. That's how big they are. That's why he's saying that. And then listen to what he says. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his, like that of the upright, like that of those who belong to Israel. Why? Because it's a blessed thing to die as a righteous one as opposed to the unrighteous. So Balaam understands that dying as the upright is far better than those who don't believe in Yahweh. Psalm 49, 15 says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Okay, so the idea there is uh, David is going to be received by the Lord himself, and it's after death. And I'll show you some more examples of that. Psalm uh, seventy three twenty four, with your counsel you will guide me, and the idea is guide me in life, and afterward, after life, receive me to glory. So this idea, what's that song we sing? Jim, you'll know this one. By and by, uh, I'll go to glory, oh. I'll, I'll fly away. Is that how it's going? Sorry, I won't sing. I'm going to wreck the tape. I better quit. So anyway, but it just always reminds me, I love that term glory because that's where we're heading. We're heading to glory and bliss with our Lord. And that's what David expected, friends. Proverbs 14.32, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. So clearly, friends, the Old Testament is saying that where the righteous go after death is far different than the unrighteous. Um, I also want to talk now about the eternal states in the Old Testament. Here's what I mean by that. Remember, the, immediate, the intermediate state, we saw a distinction that the body and the soul are separated, and we saw that the righteous in the Old Testament, they're going to go to the grave, that is their body goes to the grave, and their soul goes to heaven or goes to be with the Lord. And the unrighteous, their body also goes in the grave, 
but their soul goes to Sheol or Hades, as it would be called in the New Testament. So that's the intermediate state prior to the body and soul coming together at the resurrection. Well, then in the eternal state, we're going to have a resurrected body and soul. They're going to come together. And therefore, the righteous, they're going to be raised from the dead and they're going to receive the kingdom. Now, remember, the kingdom is first coming to the earth and then it extends into the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. That'll be our home. But nonetheless, we'll be in the resurrected body for the entire kingdom period from the millennial kingdom on. And then the unrighteous, they're going to be raised and they go to hell. That's the eternal abode. Okay, so what I want you to see is that the teaching from the Old Testament is identical to the New. This is what the New Testament clearly teaches. And the reason, again, why I'm focusing on the Old is because I think the, the New Testament is so clear that once we make clear that the Old Testament is saying the same thing, we can say from Genesis to Revelation, our Bible is clear. It speaks with one voice about what happens to the righteous and the unrighteous after death. So let's look at some passages talking about the resurrection in the Old Testament. I'm always dumbfounded by scholars who claim that there's really nothing said of the resurrection in the Old Testament because I actually find quite a bit. Now, granted, I'll point out some passages that you could say, well, that's a little iffy, but you'll see some that are very clear. And now, look at I say, I'm talking about the resurrection of the Old Testament. And look at where I start. I start the New Testament, right? But there's a reason I want to talk about how Jesus applies something from the Pentateuch out of Exodus chapter 3. So Matthew 22, 29 through 33, remember in this passage, Jesus is arguing with the Sadducees. And the old joke goes, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Yeah, yeah, okay. But think about if you want to know what a Sadducee believed, a Sadducee would be like a deist. They didn't believe in anything miraculous. They believed that God was the, the, the watch winder. He just set the watch up, wound it up, and let it go. And God didn't interact in the affairs of human beings. And so therefore there could be nothing miraculous, including resurrections and the afterlife and so forth. Well, Jesus takes them to task. And listen to how he rebukes them. It says, but, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. And, and by the way, remember they were talking, remember the example, there were seven men who had, um, the first man had a, uh, a wife and she dies. And then according to the Leverite marriage law in Deuteronomy, she is supposed to be extended then to the next brother. Well, the Sadducees kept saying, well, then the next brother dies and the next brother dies and the gal just gets handed down. And then they throw out the quandary, well, whose wife will she be in heaven? And that's supposed to get Jesus. So Jesus, this is how he's answering. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And now here's a quote from Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Jesus said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So notice, friends, the crowds, they were taken by his argument. They thought it was very persuasive. Now, this text has created, again, some controversy because many people think Jesus is taking Exodus 3 out of context. And again, I'll be showing you he's not. It's a devastating argument. By the way, why would he use Exodus 3 with these Sadducees? And the reason why he would do that is because the Sadducees only believed in the authority of the Pentateuch, the first five books. So that's why Jesus is appealing to one of the first five books because that's the only thing that they would receive. So Jesus is showing them, even in your Pentateuch, there are implications that prove the resurrection. Okay? So here, let me show you the Greek, actually, because Jesus, remember, he knew Greek, he knew Latin, he knew Hebrew, and he knew Aramaic. And more than likely, he knew the Septuagint by heart. 
And I mean, he knew it by heart, and he could start in the middle of, of phrases, okay? And notice that's probably what he's borrowing from here. Notice in the, in the Greek it says, ego eimi, and I think most of us know what that is. It's I am, right? The, it's hathaos, which is God, the God of Abraham, Abram, right? So I am the God of Abram or Abraham. Now, what I want you to see is that Exodus 3.6 is very powerful because the present active indicative verb, that is this verb here, eimi, um, indicates that he currently exists. That is, God exists currently, and he currently is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, Abraham and all of the others, they're currently living. It's not that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is. Now, in the Hebrew, it really says the same thing because that... See, the difference between Greek and Hebrew is in Greek, the I am, this is a verb. But in Hebrew, that's God's name. It's Yahweh. And Yahweh comes from a, a Hebrew verb. Uh, you're going to think I'm doing a karate chop, but it's Hayah. Hayah is the present tense. The um, tense, the, the idea of the future, it happens. It's called a yiktol. It's with a yod on it. With a, so it's Yahweh. You add Yahweh. So it literally is, I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be. And so that's how it's right. So the whole point is, his own name, the name of the living God, Yahweh, is synonymous with his being present. So it's the idea of, I am who I am. And so it renders itself very nicely to the Greek, although the Greek has to use the verb. But the whole point is, is God, friends, is the God of the living, not of the dead. He is currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they expired, then you would have to reason that God was the God of three dead men. And so Jesus turns this around on the Sadducees. And if Jesus is correct, and he is, about Exodus 3, 6, then the Sadducees, their God with a small g, is merely a God of three dead guys who are stinking it up. And what kind of God is that? And the Hebrews knew it. And it made them furious that the Sadducees would worship such a worthless God. And so they marveled at Jesus' teaching. So here Jesus proves from the Pentateuch itself, the the first five books, that in fact the resurrection is necessary because God will never be the God of three dead guys. He currently is the God of them and therefore they must be living. Next, I want to bring you to Job. It's a very powerful passage here in Job 19, 25 through 27. This is very devastating. I think it proves the resurrection in the Old Testament. Job says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. It's obviously referring to death. Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. This red portion that I have highlighted is very important because in the ancient Near East, there was this belief that people, when they died, it was that they would see things through their offspring, through their, their prodigy, their, their kids, right? But what Job is saying here is that it can't be his kids that are going to be doing he's taking the He's taking the possibility of him referring to his children and him seeing God through his children, he's taking that away. Because notice he says, whom I myself, he's using the reflexive pronoun, I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. So it can't be Job referring to seeing God through the life of his children, but it's he himself. And that is absolutely devastating. It proves that Job expected to live again after he died. Job was going to be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, 10 through 11 
Now, remember, this passage that we're looking at is attributed to Christ in Acts chapter 2. And in fact, Peter says that because David was a prophet who wrote Psalm 1610, he looked forward to the Christ. And the evidence during that sermon at Pentecost, Peter pointed to the fact that David was still in the tomb stinking it up. He was rotting. And therefore, this had to apply to the Christ. But nonetheless, this proves that there is a resurrection. Okay, so all we have to do is prove that the category of resurrection is true. Because remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, some of you are saying that there's no such thing categorically as a resurrection. And he says, if there's not such thing as a resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but ah, Christ has been the raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. So this proves, friends, that the resurrection occurs. Psalm 16, 10 through 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence and fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Remember when Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures? Well, where is in the Scriptures it said the Messiah would be raised on the third day? I think this could be it here. Because the Hebrews, according to, for instance, Leviticus 7, they believe the decay set in after the third day. That's why the Levites, the priests, they had to consume meat by the third day. Why? Afterwards, decay. And that's why Lazarus, remember, and I think it's John 11, Martha says, no, don't raise Lazarus, Lord. I'm paraphrasing, but he's been in the tomb four days. He's been stinking. He's rotting. Well, on the third day, the idea is you hadn't, undergo, hadn't undergone decay. And therefore, he had to be raised by the third day. I think that's what may be being referred to here. Notice also that this is forever. Forever is olam in, in Hebrew. And it literally means age upon age. It'll never, never end. And that's where you'll fe- see the pleasures of God forever. Psalm seventeen fifteen. as for me, David says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. If anybody has the Old Testament commentary series of Kyle and Delish, they prove, and I don't have time to get into it, but they prove that this term for awake has to refer to death, awaking from death, not just from a nap or you know sleeping or something, but it's awaking from death. And therefore, this is a clear reference to the resurrection. Isaiah 25.8, and this time with the restoration of Israel, but also the, the individual and corporate resurrection. He says, he, God says, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. Remember where else you see that phrase, he will wipe away every tear? You see that in the book of Revelation. In fact, the Hebrews used to keep vials of tears with them, and they would keep that as a sign of mourning. And they knew one day from the promise in Isaiah 25:8 that one day all those tears that they had cried and mourned, God would make up for them. And so it's so beautiful when you read the book of Revelation. It's in fact a great way to witness to Jewish friends to say one day, according to our scriptures, those tears will be made up for. That's the promise that we have in Christ. Isaiah 26:19 again, whether this is talking about the corporate resurrection that is the renewal of Israel so that they believe in Messiah or it's talking about the raising of the dead, I think it's both. The, the debate is whether it's one or the other. I think it's both and. Isaiah 26:19 your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. So again, I think a clear reference to the resurrection. Now, Isaiah 53, 10 and 12, and I'm going to show you that this clearly refers to the resurrection. Remember, Christ has given atonement up into verse 10. 
And then we have this phrase where it says, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. Let me point out some things. First of all, notice that his isn't in the original Hebrew. It's added. So literally you could read this, he will see offspring which would mean the he, therefore, wouldn't be the father seeing his son, but rather the he would be Jesus himself. And he would see his offspring. Well, how can you do that if you're dead? Okay, well, the idea is he's going to be raised. That's why. Then it says he will prolong, literally it would be days, or he will have prolonged days. Well, who are they talking about? It's Jesus. But nonetheless, even if it's the father, let's just say the father, in other words, it could go either way. Let's say it's the father that is the subject well, then he will see Jesus' offspring and he will prolong his days. So if the father prolongs Jesus' days or Jesus sees prolonged days, nonetheless, he has prolonged days. Okay, well, how can you do that if you're dead? Well, of course you can if you're raised from the dead. The other thing is, notice that all the things will prosper in his hand and then also it goes on in verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. Well, Jesus is going to be doing that. How can you do that if you're dead? Well, it's because he's going to be raised from the dead. And because he poured... Now, what's interesting, friends, is Isaiah 53 is bracketed. It's, it's interesting. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 go together. And when you read Isaiah 52, 13, it gives, it gives a promise also of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, his exaltation happens in the beginning of the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52. And then here at the end of Isaiah 53, you have another phrase that talks about his exaltation. So in between is the suffering of Messiah, but when you read it, you read in the beginning, Isaiah 52, this one who's, going, who's about to suffer will be exalted, and then at the end of Isaiah 53, you read again that he's exalted. So the section is bracketed by the exaltation of the Messiah. Again, proving, I think, that um, it's talking about his resurrection. That's the ultimate form of exaltation. Finally, uh, we have two more here. Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14 Again, there's debate. Does this talk about the renewal of Israel as a whole so that they come to faith in Messiah? Or does it talk about individual resurrections? And I would say yes, it's both. It's not either or, it's both and. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And we talked about some of the implications of that in Matthew 24 because I believe Matthew 24 and the gathering that's taking place is the gathering of national Israel and to a certain extent, their resurrection is primarily in focus. First Thessalonians 4:13 onward to 17 is primarily the rapture and resurrection of believers, and they would be primarily Gentile, although we'd have also Jewish believers. And the same thing applies in Matthew 24. It's primarily Jewish, although there will be some Gentile believers as well. Because at the end of the day, if you're part of the kingdom, what matters is that you believe in Jesus, not whether you're Jew or Gentile. Uh, finally, in Daniel 12:2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And I'll be showing you this passage again in a, in a bit. But again, this is a clear reference to the resurrection. So again, friends, clearly the Old Testament teaches the resurrection. I want to move on to the doctrine of hell in the Old Testament, talking about two passages, one out of Isaiah 66 and the other one out of Daniel 12. And I'm going to show you in Isaiah 66, this is exactly where Jesus borrows his language, for instance, in Mark chapter 9 about what hell is like. So listen to what Isaiah talk, talks about here, and it's with, with reference to the eternal states coming. It says, Isaiah 66, 22 through 24, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, 
declares the Lord, so your offspring, remember seed, zera, collective noun, and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, so to be perpetual, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. So now this is an image of hell. They're looking at those in hell and it says, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, meaning it's eternal, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now what I want you to see is that in Mark chapter 9, Jesus borrows from this very imagery. In Mark 9, 47 through 48, Jesus is talking about the importance of living a life that is, which is consistent with our salvation. Eternal salvation, yes, but not eternal presumption. That's the idea. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And I'm going to talk about that term in a bit here. Gehenna is how we pronounce it in in English. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's the identical phrase here from Isaiah 66. Okay, talking about the eternality of this punishment. And also we see, and again, in Daniel 12 too, now I just want to show you the emphasis here is on the resurrection of the the just and the unjust. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These, that is the righteous to everlasting life, but to the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And again, the term would be olam. It's age upon age upon age. It never ends. And so again, this is devastating to those who are what call themselves annihilationists, who say that the punishment of God is temporary and that a just God would never punish anyone eternally. The text is very clear. It is eternal. And... This is the thing, friends. We as Christians have to take the Scriptures and align our thinking to them rather than aligning the Scriptures to our thinking. And that's what's happened to a lot of scholars, unfortunately. So again, let me just show you one more thing again and just wrap it up a little bit in this section. Again, the eternal state in the Old Testament, it's identical to that of the New. We see here that the body and the soul are resurrected and that the righteous at the resurrection are going to go to the kingdom and that the unrighteous, at their resurrection, they're going to go to hell. So the Old Testament, friends, is teaching the identical doctrine that the New Testament clearly teaches. Okay. Now let's look at the New Testament data on hell and judgment. And I want to start off by talking about the term for um, hell. Gehenna is how we would say it in, in the English. It's actually derived from a Hebrew phrase meaning the Valley of Hinnom. Sometimes you'll see it in the Old Testament, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Ben means son in Hebrew, so it would be the son of Hinnom. And apparently, most scholars believe that it was probably one of the original owners of that piece of land, and so therefore became known as the the son of uh, Hinnom. But let me just show you where this comes from, this idea of Gehenna, and it's actually borrowed from the Old Testament. You can read passages like Second Chronicles 28, 1 through 4, and also passages like here in Jeremiah 7 about this area just south of Jerusalem where the Israelites end up doing great sin against the Lord. Let me read Jeremiah 7, 31 through 32. The Lord is rebuking those of Judah. He says, They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Let me stop there. Some people like um, the open theist try to say, well, here's something that God didn't, never thought about. It's not that. It's just so abhorrent to God that he's saying, this is something that's so vile, I will have no part of it. And he's showing that he is absolutely outraged with this. And friends, I tell you what, those who are boarding and murdering children today, they would, they would do well to look at passages like this and see what God thinks of it. 
Therefore, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hittim, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place. The dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. Let me make several comments. First of all, what is this term Topheth? I know MacArthur believes it's referring to drums, and that these people used to drum to drown out the sounds of the children as they would scream in horror. That's very possible, but I think a better rendering is this term Topheth actually comes from an Aramaic term, Tepheth, with an E, and it literally means fireplace. But what the Hebrews did to add insult to the term is they vowel-pointed it with the term Bosheth. Now, why is Bosheth important? Because it means shameful. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, remember David remembers his covenant with Jonathan and he says, who can I extend mercy to? And they pick Mephibosheth. The end of Mephibosheth's name is Bosheth. So his name literally means shameful one. Okay, remember he's a cripple and he ends, he's, shame, he's the shameful one, the crippled one. He's brought to the king's table and he's going to partake of the king's table forever. Well, anyway, Bosheth, the vowel points of that is added to Tepheth and so you get Topheth. So it's a shameful fireplace. And so forever the Israelites use that term as a mockery of those who would do something so abhorrent to Yahweh and his children. Again, it's in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, this term then is translated in the Greek Gehenna. So it means the same thing. And that is actually, this place is just to the south of Jerusalem and to the southwest. That's where the valley of Ben-Hinnom gathers. So it actually connects on to the Kidron Valley. And what I think is interesting is where does Yahweh bring the last judgment? I believe, it, it, remember it's called, I, I think it's at the Kidron Valley. It's at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, meaning Yahweh will judge. And isn't it interesting that this is really occurring in the same place? So think about all the wickedness that ever happened here. This becomes the picture, that is the Valley of the Ben-Hinnom, is the picture of this, it ends up being a garbage dump, it always burns. Um, This is where they burn children. All these evil things happen there. And one day that's where Yahweh is going to come and he's going to set everything right. All the nations are going to be piled up here. And in fact, the, the birds of the air will feast on their flesh. And so this is, and this is where we get the image of, of hell, of the idea that children are burning, the idea that later on garbage burns continuously and that the worm never dies. It's a place of utter misery. And so that's where Gehenna comes from. Now, in Matthew 10, 20, 10 28, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, literally in Gehenna. And so who should we fear? Well, we should fear God, not what man can do to us. One important point that I think we have to bring up is this term for destroy, apolumi, which means to ruin, destroy. But notice, friends, it doesn't mean to annihilate. Remember, annihilationists are those who, again, who cannot stand the idea that a righteous and just God would punish people forever. So they try to claim that this destruction that we see repeatedly in the Old and the New Testament refers to the destruction in the sense that something ceases to exist. But friends, that's never how destruction is used really in any culture. Think about today. If you see somebody in a car accident and you ask, what happened to your car? They say, well, it was destroyed. Well, they're not saying it ceased to exist. It may not run, it may not work very well, but it, it still exists. It's just a big piece of metal now that's all wrecked, right? Well, the same thing applies to destruction here. It doesn't mean people cease to exist, 
but rather they're suffering this eternal torment. Matthew 18.8, Jesus says, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And again, the point is it is eternal or everlasting, however, but it goes on forever. It will never stop. And so those who claim that God would never do that, they are, in fact, changing what God has clearly said. Second Thessalonians 1.9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction in the context is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. So again, you see the notion of eternal destruction. So friends, hell is going to be a place of eternal torment, and that's why it's so imperative that we, of course, preach the gospel because this life counts for eternity. And when people read the Bible, I've heard the term, or you've probably heard it as well, that people will say, I think Jesus is more than just a fire escape. And he is. But being or having salvation from this eternal fire is of the utmost importance. It is primary and is what evangelicals have always affirmed. And the reason why we have always affirmed it is because we believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture and in, in that what it says is what it means, that it actually exists. And so therefore, friends, this is nothing to toy with. Our God, the Holy One of Israel, is not a cosmic cream puff. And His wrath is real, and um, He is certainly nothing to toy with. Okay, um, now I just want to end on this notion, the two different judgments. Now, next time when we're together, or last night, I'm going to, in the very beginning... I'm going to be talking about, I want to talk a little bit about the new heavens, the new earth, and the nature of our resurrected body just briefly because I didn't have time to get all that in. But then we'll be going on to talk about wrapping up the different positions. Uh, But uh, I want to talk about these two different judgments. And I want to first of all talk about believers at the Bema judgment where we have reward and the unbelievers at the white throne judgment that is, the, the, they're going to receive nothing but punishment. So believers and unbelievers go to two different judgments. So let's talk again about a believer who dies. The body goes into the ground, the soul goes to be with the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 5.8. The second thing that happens after a believer dies is that their body and their soul will be reunited in the resurrection. It will have a glorified body that will never suffer anymore. And let me just give you evidence of this. Remember 1 Corinthians 15.23-24 uh, talking about the resurrection, it says, but each in his own order. That is the resurrection. Christ, the first fruits. And remember what his first fruits mean? Jesus is raised on the 16th day of Nisan. On the 16th day of Nisan, that would be the time when the Israelites would have taken a wave offering. They've taken all the first fruits of the harvest, hence the term first fruits. They would wave it in front of the Lord and they'd say, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We expect you for the rest. So when Jesus is raised on that feast of first fruits the idea is lord we have this much of the harvest that is jesus and we expect you for the rest that's the imagery and what's the rest what's you and i it's you and i one day the whole harvest will come in and so that's the imagery that paul is using so he says after that those who are christ at his coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the god the father so i just want to show you that there's tons of scriptural evidence for this number three then we find ourselves at the judgment seat of christ second corinthians 5 10 Paul writes, for me, we must all, that is, he's talking about believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and remember that term judgment is bema, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this, this bema seat judgment is where you and I are not going to be judged whether or not we go to heaven or hell. That's already been finished. It's how much reward are we going to be given. Now let me give you another passage. We're going to be coming up to one of these days in our Corinthian study. 
that talks about this judgment seat of Christ, and I can prove it to you. In 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. He's rebuking them because, remember, they're boasting in Sophia in wisdom apart from the, the gospel. Their wisdom comes from themselves, not God and a crucified Jesus. Okay, And so he's rebuking them and cautioning them how they build on this foundation that is the gospel. He says, Now if any man builds on the foundation, the gospel, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, uh, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, the foundation of the gospel is the gospel. And Paul, in context, is critiquing, saying, don't you dare claim to have wisdom and, and power if you, in fact, build on this foundation of the gospel and you boast in yourself and all the things that you bring to the table, but you, in fact, have nothing to do with the fact that Christ has been crucified and that your salvation is completely a gift. If you, in fact, build in such a way where it's not compatible with the gospel, you're, you're actually building with wood, hay, and straw. So notice the first elements, gold, silver, and precious stones. They're permanent. They're non-destructible, and they will be part, uh, member of the temple. They're in the temple. Well, the next three elements the wood, hay, and straw, those are perishable, aren't they? And those, in fact, will burn up. And that's a symbol of those who build their own works not based on the gospel of Christ. Now, let me prove to you that this is talking about the judgment uh, seat of Christ. First of all, the day. The day is only used of judgment in the New Testament. The day. It's used in an eschatological context. And fire. Fire only does two things. It purifies or it tests. And here, clearly, it's the testing of judgment. And so this is clearly a reference to what we saw back in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And notice, the man, if he, all his works are burned up, he will suffer loss, but yet he himself will be saved. And so certainly salvation is not an issue. And that term saved is sozo. It only has to do with saving in a, an eternal sense. That's usually how it's used. And so again, the issue is the person will in fact enter the kingdom. It's just that their works will be counted. Not, they will have wasted their entire life. Can you imagine living, you know, you're a believer, but you wasted your life, you built, and you built, and you built, and it was all wood, hay, and stubble. It was all gone. And it's got to be, it's a tremendous, so again, remember, that's forever too. This person is going to enter the kingdom, but they'll certainly have suffered a loss of reward. The fourth thing will reign with Christ in his kingdom. Remember, his kingdom starts in the millennial kingdom, literally to the earth. It starts in the, on the earth, and then it goes to the eternal states. Let me just show you the idea that will reign. 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, that is in a salvific way, that is the perseverance of the saints, all those who believe in Christ will persevere, we also will reign with him. Revelation 5.10, This all, by the way, this is stated in Revelation 20 as well, but I want to show you this passage because notice what it says. It says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, that is all believers, and they will reign upon where? The heavens? On a cloud with a harp? No, it's upon the earth. The kingdom is coming to the earth, friends. A great passage to share with your amillennialist friends. The kingdom is coming to the earth. Okay. Now let's talk about an unbeliever. An unbeliever, number one, when they die, again, their, their body goes to the ground, their soul goes to Hades. We saw evidence of that in Luke 16, 23. Remember, Hades is synonymous with Sheol. This, um, let me give you a, a passage, actually, out of the New Testament. Revelation 6, 8, John says, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. So Hades ends up being the temporal holding place for the wicked, and then once they go through the white throne judgment, then they're thrown into the lake of fire. 
2 Peter 2.9, this is talking about this same temporal holding ground. Peter says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous, what? Under punishment for the day of judgment. So currently, right now, the unrighteous are under judgment or under punishment awaiting the final judgment. Number two, at the resurrection, the body and soul are reunited. They get a, um, a resurrected body, but it's specifically for the purpose of judgment at the white throne. Here's a picture and depiction of the white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And friends, those are, um, actually that's verse 15 in there as well. Let me just point this out. Here we have the second death. Remember at the very beginning I talked about every person dies at least once. But here the unregenerate, the unbelievers, those who have scorned Jesus. Remember Jesus' name means Yahweh is salvation. At the end they get Yehoshaphat. Um, Yahweh is judgment. And they get the second death. And they will be in the lake of fire eternally. So let me give you a summary And um, again, next week, I'll be talking a little bit more about the resurrected body and talking about some of the glories that await us. Uh, Number one, the Old Testament doctrine of Sheol is synonymous, we saw, with the New Testament doctrine of Hades when used in reference to the holding place of unbelievers at death. Remember, it's used three different ways, Sheol is, and the New Testament picks up on it as the place where unbelievers go. Number two, the Old Testament and New Testament clearly teach that all people will be raised from the dead the believer unto eternal bliss, the, un- the believer unto eternal bliss, the unbeliever unto eternal torment. Number three, and I think this is important, and this is what it's all about, friends. We as God's people should be extremely grateful for the salvation we have received and the promise of our eternal reward with Christ. And let me just leave you with a final passage. Second Peter 3.13, listen to what Peter says is our promise. And it's his promise. It's a promise based on cassette. It's the covenant love that Yahweh has for his people. It says, but according to his promise, we, that is all believers, are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, that's our eternal abode. That's where we're heading. This life is nothing but a vapor And by God's grace, we have entered into his kingdom through faith in his son. And this is our eternal reward. And friends, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the world by the tail. You have it all. You've got all you need. But friends, if there are any listening here this evening or going to be listening over the Internet and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, friends, heed these warnings. These are warnings to you. These are warnings you should heed that these um, warnings about eternal punishment are real. And um, I would just caution you not to toy with the Holy One of Israel, but repent and believe in His Son. So with that, I will stop and I will take anybody's uh, questions. Yeah, Tom. First of all, um, uh, when I was in seminary, I was taught that uh, Sheol 90% of the time means the grave. And, the, and that uh, if, if, you, if, it can mean, if it can mean the grave, it should be taken as the grave. Yeah, that's probably a safe assumption. What I always say is look at the context and look how it's used. The one thing I want to point out here is that it's used in three different ways, and certainly it's used as the grave often. Right. Yep, good. In uh, Psalm chapter 27, verse 13, David writes, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Another passage. Um, it's what I was taught was that the Jews' main hope actually was not heaven, but it was living in the land uh, in the land of Palestine, in the land of uh, yeah, it's very physical, yeah. yeah, very yeah. very physical. Yep. That's right.
And the third thing is that um, there's actually a, th- a, th- a third set of judgments, yeah. that there's the judgment of, of the Jews. These are both at the end of the tribulation period. You're talking about the sheep and goats judgment? Sheep and goats yeah. for the Gentiles yeah. and Jews in, in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 20. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I didn't get... Um, I'm kind of glossing over the, the big oh, ones, yeah. yeah. But you're, you're correct, those are judgments right. as well. Right, that's I'm glad. But is everybody aware of those? I, I don't know if we'll have... Um, time to get into we might bring those up next time in fact we will bring up matthew 25 the sheep and the goat judgment next week because it plays an important role in why um, post-tribulation um post-trib can't probably be true so yeah we'll talk about that did you have an exception clause for the rapture people um as far as uh one death per person you know oh yeah you know let's talk about that briefly let me just say this um Let's talk about also Enoch and um, Elijah. They're caught up. And in fact, um, I'm going off, but I'll, I'll come back to that point. Enoch and Elijah, some scholars think that the two witnesses must be them because they end up dying, and therefore it would, all flesh will have died. But Dick raises the point, what about those who are raptured prior to them dying? And let me just say this, we don't have the data, but what's interesting is per- perhaps the very metaphysical uh, thing of our being raised from the dead or being, uh, I should say, given glorified bodies, perhaps in the twinkling of an eye we do die and we're given resurrected. You know what I'm saying? In other words, none of us know what it's like to get a resurrected body. We don't, I mean, what's that feel like, you know? Maybe you, you die real quick and you're, I mean, I don't know. So no, in other words, maybe that counts as death. I, I just don't know and I wish, I don't have any data to tell you. All I can tell you is that the scriptures clearly declare that the death rate is, it seems to me, one per person. However, these other exceptional clauses, perhaps it's because the resurrection at that point, you're actually kind of killed and then renewed right away instantaneously. So perhaps that's why I don't have any other data to give you other than that. So it's kind of speculative, I guess. Yeah. I've just got a comment to make about um, something you said way at the beginning where um, you had the reference to um, the people in the Old Testament, who died yeah. and were gathered to their fathers. Yeah. And because of this idea of them, their bodies being put into some kind of rock tomb, yeah. um, which was the common way of doing it in Israel, yeah. um, what often happened was their bodies were put in for a period of time until they decomposed, wow. and then their bones were put in a box, an yeah. ossuary, uh, for a while, particularly yeah. if they were very well-known people. Yeah. But then if the number of boxes with bones got to the, the point where it was a, a lot, they would just put all the, the bones belonging to the family in a part of the pit at the back of the cave. Oh, okay. So that's why they talk about being gathered to their oh, fathers yeah. because all their family bones were put together. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And that's why, to me, I love that, Pat. Thanks so much for sharing that. I, that's why it's so moving to me that Joseph of Arimathea, he gives his tomb away because once you've done that, that's an expensive thing back then. That was a big deal. It's like a car in, as far as an expense goes. And to give that away, it shows that Joseph of Arimathea believed in Jesus and so much so he was able to give even that. So, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. That's really beautiful. Yeah, Melanie. A oh, couple things. In Luke, when it talks about Lazarus, yeah. Being in Abraham's bosom. Yeah. Can you expound on that a little bit? Is it like for us being in Abraham's bosom when we go to be with the Lord? Or um, 
Until we have resurrected bodies? or Yeah, you know, Melanie, um, I have to be honest. I, I don't know if I could tell you precisely what it means to be in Abraham's bosom, but let me just tell you what I do know is that Abraham is regarded as the father of all the righteous. And even the Jews understood that. And so to be in Abraham's bosom is to be so closely associated with him that you're in his family. I, I don't think that Jesus and I don't think the Jews would have understood it as being a metaphysical thing. The other thing is their belief in corporate solidarity, the seed. The, um, remember that term seed zera is a corporate term. It means the one and the many. And so... Um, Abraham being the father of the faith, if you're with him, if you're associated with him, you're one of his too. You're one of the seed and therefore you're saved. So to be in his bosom is in that sense, I think, is what Christ is referring to, if that makes sense. I'm guessing sense. it's a comfortable place to be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. want to be there. Yeah, um, so, I'm sorry, Just it would be associated with him. That would be the idea, Yeah, where he is. The other question I had was for the unbeliever. The difference between Hades and hell, um, yeah. Hades being the holding tank when they died before they're with their resurrected body. Yeah. Is it, um, is there a, a difference, a physical difference being in Hades than being in the lake of fire, I'm guessing? I'm yeah, guessing. I think there is. And one of the differences, and again, there's not a lot of data on it, but one is we know, for instance, in Revelation 20, uh, verses 14 through uh, 15, that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So that shows that there's a distinction between the two places. Jesus is obviously in his parable, the rich man and Lazarus, he's talking about the temporal holding ground. But that's one reason why, um, remember the the unrighteous, they're raised after the thousand-year reign, and they're raised from the dead specifically for the purpose of judgment at the white throne. And so in some sense, they're given a resurrected body not to enjoy eternal bliss as you and I are as believers, but rather to be able to partake in the eternal punishment and judgment. And so the eternal lake of fire, their body is specifically designed so that they will endure. Um, and so, so the point is I, I think you get the notion that the eternal lake of fire is even worse. As bad as Hades was, it's even worse. So Hades nothing to fool with either. But um, So in other words, think about this. An unbeliever has nothing good to look forward to. It's Hades and then it's hell. And neither one of them are very good. Um, it just gets worse. So, yeah. Another thing that I just uh, remembered was that, that I was taught was that uh, Old Testament believers, when they died, could not go to heaven to be with God because heaven was not opened yet because Christ had not yet died and been resurrected and gone back to heaven to open up the way to heaven. Yeah, um, I, I, I would disagree with that. I, I think there is this notion that the... Um, um, the believer does go to be with Yahweh, and Yahweh's abode is out. And in some sense, Yahweh is everywhere. He's he's omnipresent, but his abode is in the heavenly realm, and that's where they pictured themselves going. Some of these passages that you're referring to is come out of First and Second Peter, and I can maybe address them next week. The idea there, in some of the, remember the creed. There was the uh, is it the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus descended into hell on the third day he rose again. That's been misunderstood as well, the idea that Jesus somehow had to go win victory in hell and bring these souls out of there into the heavenly realm. Exactly. But the idea, what's interesting is the the creed, when it was written, they didn't understand hell that way. They understood it as in the, the depths of the earth, so to speak, that he was in the grave. But people have misinterpreted that. 
but that's where that notion comes from. But I, scripturally, we see that Yahweh's abode is in the heavenly realm, and that's clearly where his people go. So. Yeah, I think that's, I remember now, that, that, that idea in Ephesians 4 of leading captivity captive. Captive, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of discussion on how that psalm, because there's actually a psalm being quoted there by David, and that is, uh, that's one of the grandest exegetical issues in our day, and it's, it's very clear once one gets it, but that would take a long time to discuss. But my, my, to make the short, make it short and sweet, yeah, I think they're wrong. Um, I think the data is clear that Yahweh's abode is in heaven and in the heavenly realm, and that's where his people go. So, yeah. So with that, um, I want to just thank everybody for all, you know, the effort and study that you've put in. And uh, we'll see everybody next Tuesday will be our last class. What I want to do is I want to talk about a few more items where we're going. What's our resurrected body like? I'll show you just some hints. We don't know a lot, but we know some things about the resurrected body. We'll talk a little bit about um, what will the millennial kingdom be like, just a few things, and then what will be the New, Jer- uh, New Jerusalem? What will that be like? And just a few hints. Not a lot, we'll just, but I just want to finish that off. So if any um, new person to the faith listens, they'll get a full orb. And then we're going to talk about post, mid, pre-trib, the different positions. We'll put up a huge timeline at the end, and we'll just wrap it up with that. So uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next Tuesday.